When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In an experiment. Like so far. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, dead trees, climate change, and the important role of insects. And the UN's upcoming biodiversity summit. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up on the show, when it comes to modelling climate change, and in particular the effects of increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, a vital element is understanding the carbon cycle. That's the way in which carbon atoms move between plants, animals, soil, rocks, oceans and the air. An expansive new research project has looked at just one element of this cycle, the carbon stored in and released from dead trees globally, and how insects may be a key part of this. I spoke to one of the authors of the new study, forest ecologist Jörg Müller, and started by asking him why they set out to study dead trees. It is well known that growing trees store carbon, and it's a huge debate on the globe how to deal with forests. But dead trees are often forgotten. And how much of an impact does trees dying have on the carbon cycle, on the release of carbon dioxide, and ultimately on climate change? So currently, 8% of the carbon stored in forests is stored in dead trees, so not in living trees. So it matters. And in our analysis, we found out that the annual release of carbon from dead wood is about 115% of the carbon released by humans. So it is considerable part of the cycle. Wow, 115%. So it's a decent chunk. And what are the different ways in which dead wood ends up decomposing back into carbon dioxide? The very interesting thing in light of the carbon cycle is the speed and the contributors. So all these processes are managed by organism. And this is about 
the interplay between fungi and saproxylic insects. So when I think about wood decaying in a forest, um, I would definitely think about molds and mushrooms and things like that breaking it down. But insects aren't an obvious contributing factor. What kind of insects are we talking about? Uh, some people know those very fancy jewel beetles, the most beautiful beetles in the world with golden shiny surfaces. So some of the jewel beetles are important organisms breaking down wood inside. So the larvae, they eat the wood. And another very famous group are the stack beetles with the big mandibles. Many others are much smaller. Some are known pests like some bark beetles. So the tiny organism can have substantial effects in general on trees or even on the decomposition. But so far, it was unclear. Is it a story about mushrooms only? And the beetles are just some fancy, nice add-on? Or is it more? So you wanted to be able to model and really probably understand the factors in this sort of particular part of the carbon cycle. But of course, there are different insect species in different parts of the world, different types of trees, different weather and climate. How did you make sure that you were getting a full view of how this worked? We used basically two types of maps. The one type was a map of forests in the world. So we were interested only in habitats with trees, of course. And the second was a climate map to see in which range of climates, from very cold to very warm, from very dry to very wet, trees are growing. And based on that, we asked ourselves, where do we know friends? And then we said, okay, we can cover this region with this friend and this and so on. And then we saw still some areas are missing. And then we searched for new groups or friends of friends to cover the full range. And it must have been quite an undertaking to manage all this data from sites all over the world like that. Yeah, it was a, a huge collaborative act. The circumstances were not always so easy because some plots were destroyed by elephants, some plots were flooded, one plot was fully burned, so we lost all our equipment there. So it was, it was quite a challenge to, to manage it. So how exactly did you study how wood was decomposing in all of your different sites? So the, the, the aim was to have a highly standardized protocol because this was missing on such studies so far. So what we did is each site had to select three native tree species from the site and cut pieces of three centimeter in diameter and 50 centimeter long. And how did you manage to sort of separate out the impact of insects versus other things affecting the decomposition of your wood? So we conducted an exclusion experiment where we used cages and some metal mesh on the ground, which does not allow termites to have access to the wood. And the second treatment was an open access for everyone. So it was basically like trapping your piece of wood in a, in a cage so that none of the insects can get in. Exactly. And how did you know that the cage itself wasn't sort of changing the decomposition of the wood? We had a second cage type. It is an open cage, which has almost the same microclimate as a closed cage, but bigger holes which allow insects to walk in or to fly in. And once you'd collected all of your data, what did you find about how much 
different insects were making in different places to how fast that wood was decomposing. Yeah, the major finding was that on the global perspective, on the annual release, insects are about almost 30%. So we already know that the release of carbon from deadwood has a huge impact, more than that which is released by humans. And now you've found that 30% of that sort of decomposition is being caused or aided by insects. Exactly. And the interesting thing is, this is always the annual value for the whole globe. But what we see is that the variation in the globe is massive. The insects can play from a tiny negative role to release to a high positive role of carbon release. And this is very, on the first glance, fully surprising. How can insects reduce the release of carbon from dead wood? And the interesting thing is that a number of insects bring their own fungi to the wood and they are like farmers. So they are interested to raise mushrooms and to eat the mushrooms. And these mushrooms, they outcompete the principal decomposer of dead wood so that you slow down the decomposition process. And the next interesting question is, how is the influence of insect decline in the globe? We probably are faced with at the moment how this will affect also these processes. So this is beyond our study. We just show in our study it matters. And we can show it matters, particularly the tropics. From the whole carbon released from dead wood annually, it is more than 90% from the tropics. Now that you know that in the tropics, there's a huge amount of carbon being released from dead wood each year, insects play a really big role in that. Does that impact policy at all? Because the tropical forests are so significant on the global carbon cycle, even with our study now, it's not the first time that such a result comes out that the tropicals are important for the global climate. Even from the deadwood perspective, they are. And this means we have to take care on the tropical forests much more than we currently do. And when we see the pressure on them in countries like Brazil, it's a clear motivation. Be more careful with this important terrestrial habitat. That was Jörg Müller, and you can find his paper out in Nature This Week, linked to in the show notes. In a moment, we're going to be hearing about COP15, the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity. Before that, though, we've got Dan Fox here with this week's research highlights. More massive stars seem to host bigger planets, and new research may have an explanation. Of the more than 4,000 planets that have been spotted outside of the solar system, bigger ones seem to circle around more massive stars. Previously, this fact puzzled astronomers, but there may be answers in the planet's atmospheres. Planets form from the dust and gas that surrounds baby stars. As material collects, gravity pulls more matter into place, until eventually you have a planet. According to the new work, the planets around more massive stars have high proportions of hydrogen and helium in their atmosphere. The authors suggest that when larger stars are forming, 
There are bigger disks of material, which allows the hydrogen and helium to be collected by the planets more efficiently. This efficiency translates to bigger planets. Gather up that research in astronomy and astrophysics. Climate change is making more ice melt, and this melt seems to be moving continents. It's well known that when ice melts, land masses underneath are lifted up, as they no longer have that weighty burden. But new research suggests that continents are not only moving vertically, but also horizontally. By combining satellite data on ice with models on how the Earth's crust responds to changes in mass, the research showed that between 2003 and 2018, the ground has shifted horizontally across much of the northern hemisphere. Canada and the United States have moved as much as 0.3 millimeters a year. Pretty slow for a snail, but rather speedy for a continent. And the research suggests that in some places the horizontal movement outpaced the vertical. Move more than a millimeter to find that research in geophysical research letters. Now, in case the research highlights weren't enough for you, we've got even more Dan Fox in this next piece. Dan has been talking to Essa Masood, Nature's Africa and Middle East Bureau Chief, about the upcoming UN Biodiversity Conference, COP15. He started by asking Essan what the conference was all about. So alongside climate change in 1992, nearly 30 years ago, the international community also created an international agreement, a global agreement, to conserve biological diversity and to equitably share the benefits of biodiversity from things like medicinal plants. Uh, and this all came together in a United Nations agreement. It was at the same time as the Climate Convention. And like the Climate Convention, every few years, there's a big gathering of all of the people involved, the ministers, the heads of state, the campaigners, the businesses, and so on. And they, they meet to agree things. Uh, this time around, it's a really important meeting. It's going to be in Kunming. In China, it's been delayed. It'll be almost delayed for two years. In fact, it happens in May of 2022. And they need to agree a new set of rules, if you like, new targets, new timetable to, to protect biodiversity. So broadly, where are we in terms of biodiversity going into this conference? Like, how are we doing? How are we doing or how are we not doing is probably a better way of putting it. Um it's it's bad. So, so all I can say, you know, since the 90s into the early 2000s and now, there have been repeated pledges to first slow down the rate of biodiversity loss, which is, by many estimates, the most severe since the last mass extinction. That doesn't mean to say there's going to be another mass extinction tomorrow, but we're sort of beginning to turn the curve in the wrong direction. There have been these promises that the international community will do what it can to slow down and then eventually reverse the loss of biological diversity that's happening, the level of species in terms of extinctions, ecosystems degradation, and all the other ways in which we're losing the natural world. But unfortunately, every time uh, we, as in the world, and all of those who govern us, all of our representatives, every time 
we made these agreements and we give deadlines at the last meeting. The deadline was 10 years. And they agreed that in 10 years, they would make progress. And it hasn't happened. And before that, there was another plan and they promised that they would make progress and it hasn't happened. So now it's sort of like the third time. And there's a lot of frustration, particularly among scientists who, like in climate change, have been you know, sending out warning signals for a while and they just feel they're not being listened to. So are the reasons that biodiversity policy has perhaps struggled to get traction the same as with climate policies? Some of the reasons are similar. Of course, the big one being that, you know, biodiversity loss shares some of the same causes as climate change, particularly unchecked industrialization, you know, kind of industrialization that happens without asking questions. You know, what are the consequences of pumping fossil fuels into the atmosphere? What are the consequences of industrial scale agriculture? What are the consequences of raising forest land and so on? And so some of those things are similar. I think biodiversity has always had this additional hurdle, which is one of language and terminology. Even the word biodiversity is like bio what? Biodiversity, it's shorthand for biological diversity. So what is that? So immediately there's a sort of, there's this barrier to uh, understanding. And then on top of that, with climate, we kind of understand there's a threat and we know that we need to decarbonize because the planet's heating, the planet's warming. What about losing biodiversity? It doesn't quite have the same urgency. What is the, the nature of the risk and the threat? It's not easy to explain. And I think that's been a barrier to policymaking. So does biodiversity have the equivalent of net zero? It doesn't. And that is what some scientific groups would very much like it to have. They see that part of the problem is that the agreements are made and there isn't sort of one or two things that can, can really capture international attention, the attention of young people, attention of businesses and, and, and NGOs. And so there is talk of uh, trying to capture biodiversity, perhaps using an index you know, where, where you collapse several things, species and ecosystems, health. Uh, biodiversity's benefits to people into one kind of scorecard type number. That's an idea. Another idea is just to choose one thing, you know, uh, extinction, rate of extinctions. Let's just monitor that and see how we're doing. And that could be like a thermometer. As with climate change, as, as net zero has done, as the 1.5, which we to be target has done, biodiversity needs something that's relatable and which, uh, which people can, can then understand why it's so important. So what do you think is likely to come out of this event? I am not a betting man. Well, mostly. But if I were, I would say based on previous COPs, there will be an agreement because these uh, people who organize these events, they are like expert at, um, you know, getting thousands of people into a room and then forging some kind of consensus around, around what needs to be done. So there will be an agreement. It will not be what the conservation groups and the scientists want to happen. So in a sense, it'll be sort of similar in terms of climate change. And I think what's quite sad and potentially problematic, but probably one for a future COP, is that there won't be a lot of discussion or, if you like, review or evaluation as to why previous agreements have not worked. It's as if, you know, we're on a kind of treadmill or a conveyor belt. Oh, the last one didn't work. Well, we'll just have some new plans and some new targets and and we'll just give ourselves another 10 years. No one's in a sense doing the social science of international environmental policy. Like, why did the last one not work? Who are the players? 
what were the pinch points, what were the blockers, what worked well, what didn't work well. These agreements are not very good at, at uh, introspection, at self-reflection. And so it's very likely that we're going to agree a, a plan and there'll be some great big event and there'll be lots of TV and buzz and media around it. And a few people will actually ask, like, why, why are we failing? Now, there is a body, there's an IPCC-style body for biodiversity. It's less well-known. It's called IPBES. Everyone here loves their acronyms. And this stands for Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. It is still new and it's kind of finding its feet, but it needs to be playing more of a role, uh, like the IPCC does, in um, bringing together all of the different points of view, particularly from the scientific community, and then presenting that to policymakers. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that some of that will happen too. That was Essen Masood talking to Dan Fox. And if you want to learn more, Nature has an editorial about the Biodiversity Summit due to take place in Kunming, China, in this week's issue. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss some intriguing science articles from the Nature Briefing. Nick, what sparked your interest today? Well, I've got something that I hope will spark your interest too, and I'm going to try and do my best sort of clickbaity voice. The story I've been looking at is about cannibal cane toads. Oh, I mean, anything with cannibals or or toads or or, or cane um sounds great to me <laughs> so so is this a horrible wildlife story where we thought the animals were really cute because i saw a video on, on twitter this week of a really nice friendly looking tortoise eating a cute little chick so are the cane toads just <laughs> horribly eating each other is that what's happening i mean they are horribly eating each other but it's not Something that we thought was cute um, and (laughs) then has turned out not to be. The cane toads that I've been reading about are ones in Australia. And these are a very, very invasive species. In some ways, they're almost a quintessential invasive species. They were introduced into Australia in 1935 and have since run rampant across the country because they have no natural predators. Oh my gosh, yeah, no, I have actually heard of this. I feel like they spoofed it in The Simpsons once and there were just sort of toads everywhere. So have they been causing huge problems in Australia? They've caused huge problems for a long time, but this story is about the fact that they're so numerous and they have so few natural predators that the biggest evolutionary pressure comes from themselves. So some of these toads have started eating each other when they're very young. Oh, so this is like a new development. Yes, that's right. So there was a study this week, and I was reading about it in a new story in Nature, where they've sort of observed that cane toads have been eating each other when they're in their very early stages. So tadpoles will eat hatchlings. So when they just hatch from the eggs, those are hatchlings, and the tadpoles will eat them. And this seems to be a thing that only happens with the Australian version of the cane toads they're originally from south america and in the study they looked at south american cane toads and they compared them with australian cane toads and it seemed like the australian cane toads were just way 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 more likely to eat each other than the south american version so it's maybe some sort of adaptation to living in australia with just too many cane toads and were they looking at the south american cane toads and the australian cane toads in the same circumstances or were they looking at them in their natural environment so it could be a sort of environmental 
pressure rather than an inherent change that's pushing them towards it. So this was a laboratory study. So they had them in the lab and they bred them in the lab. So they bred them a couple of times so they could get some tadpoles and they could get some hatchlings and then compared them in identical conditions. And it seemed that there was something intrinsic about the Australian cane toads, which meant that they were 2.6 times more likely to cannibalize the hatchlings the tadpoles were more likely to cannibalize the hatchlings than the south american counterparts so natural selection has acted relatively quickly and and produced maybe some sort of genetic or epigenetic change yeah and it seems like actually the australian tadpoles are literally sniffing out the hatchlings because they're attracted to the scent of them so they did another experiment where there was a cage full of hatchlings and an empty cage and the australian cane toads were 30 times more likely to go to the one full of the hatchlings whereas the south american ones had no preference for either cage so there is something about them and they think it's the scent from their poisonous skin that is attracting the tadpoles oh that that is slightly creepy (laughs) cannibal cane toads i don't know why i didn't expect it to be creepy but yes (laughs) it has lived up to the excellent headline there yeah but it kind of says it in the name but it gets even weirder because the hatchlings are also quickly developing their own defense to this so it seems like the australian hatchlings when there are tadpoles present will more quickly develop than they would otherwise so they all skip through the developmental process so they can become tadpoles more quickly because the tadpoles won't eat other tadpoles they'll only eat things that are younger than them so they just try and quickly get through this so they can avoid being eaten i guess and dare i hope that this is good news for the sort of battle against invasive cane toads It may not be good news for them, although maybe they'll eat each other and that would solve that problem. (laughs) But this is an opportunity for scientists to watch an evolutionary process in real time. Cannibalism is relatively rare and seeing it evolve is even rarer. And this is something that's happened very quickly. Like I said, the cane toads have only been in Australia for 86 years. So almost in real time, or as real time as you can get with evolution, you can actually watch it happening. And they're going to start working out if there's some sort of genetic underpinning to this because like i said it seems like there's something intrinsic about the australian cane toads which means they're more likely to perform this type of cannibalism well i've got a sort of evolution story as well this week although rather than watching evolution in progress it is a snapshot from the distant past a new fossil of a very cool and unusual pterosaur has been discovered Now, this was a nature research highlight um, that the briefing linked to, and there's also a very cool Nat Geo article that went into slightly more detail. And one of the exciting things, aside from cool pterosaur bones, about this is that the fossil was seized from criminals just before it was exported from where it was collected in Brazil. Well, I mean, that is very intriguing. But maybe before we get into that, I'm imagining a pterosaur as sort of like a flying dinosaur. Is that right? Like, what sort of dinosaur is this? Nick! (laughs) Oh, Oh, okay, right. Let's go back to some basics here. Now, important fact, Nick. Pterosaurs are not dinosaurs. Oh, sorry. Um, They are... That's okay. <laughs> they are a related kind of reptile, and they were around for a lot of the same period, and they went extinct uh, in the same sort of mass extinction event. So, yes, in the scenes of dinosaurs, you know, the dinosaurs ruled the land and the pterosaurs ruled the skies. So, there were a huge variety of 
flappy reptiles um, with sort of membranous wings. This is the technical description. And several of them, this newly discovered fossil included, have very cool sort of head crests, weird large shapes sticking out from their skulls. Oh, okay. And so this new fossil, it was seized in a police raid, which sounds fascinating. But what else is sort of interesting about this new fossil in particular? It is an amazingly well-preserved piece. So I think a lot of people are excited about it. And it's a species that was previously known, I think, only from some skulls. So they were now able to get a sort of pretty much fully preserved and really well articulated skeleton with soft tissue and if you look up the pictures of this specimen this crest as i mentioned on the head is sort of like a big round sail thing off the top of its skull um you know you can see the shape of that embedded in the rock which is very cool and it looks very large and somewhat unwieldy so is this new fossil able to shed any sort of insights on why it had this sort of funny crest on top of its head well paleontologists have their theories as to this sort of headgear and i think a very popular one is that it was some sort of signaling maybe something to do with competition for mates you know maybe they were showing off to each other but an interesting thing that now we have more than just the skull that comes off of this skeleton is that while they've confirmed that this creature could definitely fly Looking at it, it looks like this headgear probably made flight kind of unwieldy. Long distance flying for this kind of pterosaur, Tupandactylus it's called, was probably somewhat tricky. So the new idea is that these animals probably spent most of their time foraging on land. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. And, well, I feel like I've asked all my science questions as is my job now. So I'm interested about this police raid. What was going on? Like, why was there a fossil <laughs> that had to be raided by the police? <laughs> Well, no, this is a big problem. So Brazil has a lot of sort of valuable fossils. The rules are very strict over there. You are not allowed to, I think, even search for fossils without some kind of a permit and definitely not sell them. So criminals go dig them up and export them. And, you know, they end up in private collections all over the world. And there are fossils in in private collections that have never been studied. So it's really, really good that this one was rescued and is now freely available. And the scientists at the University of Sao Paulo have been able to study it in detail. Oh, wow. So this is a scientific discovery we may not have known about if it not been for police intervention. That is absolutely fascinating. But I think that's probably all we have time for on the briefing chat this week. Thank you so much for speaking to me, Sharmini. And we found both those stories in The Nature Briefing, a daily email newsletter with a hand-picked selection of top science news. And you, listener, can subscribe for free by clicking the link in the show notes. Before we go, we've got some excellent videos out this week, including a documentary on new trials that are using CRISPR gene editing to treat sickle cell disease and an animation on how diabetes works. So you can check out both of those on our YouTube channel. And as usual, we'll include the link at the end of the show notes. That's all for this week. As always, if you want to comment on anything you've heard on the show, then we're on Twitter at Nature Podcast. Or we'd love to hear from you via our email address, podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bandel. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.